Well, let's continue our study in 2 Timothy 1.1, part 2 of the application parts, part of the, of the study. We spent three weeks on um, discovering the apostles, their role, their function, their, their call in the gospel. Last week we began our 15-point study on um, how we are to imitate the apostles. And I thought I would finish today, but it looks like we won't be finishing today. And maybe not even next week. We began last week how there are many parallels between the prophets and the apostles. Many parallels. But one key difference The prophets never served as models or examples to be followed by the people of God. They had many things that they personified in their lives and ministry. Uh, Ezekiel shaving his head. Isaiah walking around naked. John the Baptist eating locusts and honey in the wilderness. These were some that God had called them to do, but they were in no way... Uh, were the people of God asked to imitate their conduct. The apostles of Christ were different. Not only were they like the prophets in that they carried the oracles of God, the message of God, and they proclaimed God's truth to the world, but they modeled genuine godliness. They modeled to us Christ-likeness. So Christians are called not just to be hearers of the word through the apostles, but we are to observe the conduct, the manner of life, the practice of the apostles, and imitate their examples. We are to follow not just Paul's doctrine, but Paul's life. And to me, that is a great challenge. To me... And we said this throughout our church history. The challenge of the Christian life is not learning, understanding the doctrines of Christ to the apostles. But it's following their example. Practicing what they have preached to us. Living the life that Christ and the apostles modeled to each and every one of us. That's why Paul uh, reminds us and exhorts us to imitate his faith, imitate his way of life. He exhorts us to listen, to hear, understand, obey his doctrines, but he exhorts us the application, the practice, to imitate his life. First Corinthians 4.16, I urge you then to be imitators of me. First Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Philippians 3.17, brothers, join in imitating me. And he applauds the believers at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 1.6. You became imitators of us, which in turn means you became imitators of Christ. That is how Christ conducted his ministry. He didn't come to earth carnate as a man, a minister from afar, from behind the desk. He didn't have office hours. He didn't do just classroom instruction where he showed up for a certain amount of time and gave instruction and left. Our Lord conducted ministry 
by personally involving himself with disciples, living with them, dining with them, resting with them, even partying with them at weddings, even doing ministry with them so that they might hear his message but also see it as well. So we began our study, 15 key marks of Paul's ministry that are worthy of our attention and imitation. 15 of our attention and imitation. As I said last week, if you've been with us for any amount of time, as we go through these things one by one, you'll note, wow, I see this in my small group leader's life. In, my, in the sister that is caring for me, or in my flock shepherd, or ministry leader, I see these examples, these marks. Why? Because these are, are part and parcel of our, of our ministry. It's the heartbeat of our church. This is what we are aspiring to. From the elders and pastors on down, this is what we are aspiring after. I was talking to a brother this week, and he was telling me, you know, I just... When I meet with people in the church and when they say they love Christ, it throws my heart. When they say they love Christ's church, it throws my heart. I mean, it literally brings tears to my eyes. He was telling me how he had been to many churches, good churches, sound, doctrinally sound, biblical churches, uh, teach the word verse by verse, expositionally, faithfully. But he was telling me how by God's grace, truly by God's grace alone, that cornerstone is unique. That God is really working in our midst. That beyond just doctrine, there is a Holy Spirit-driven commitment to Christ and to one another. There is a dynamic in our midst, a love that goes beyond just shallow outward um, practice. That goes to the heart that is um, abundant in our body. And he was saying, in that way, it is so unique. And I would agree, and I would say, a key reason for this difference, a key reason that we are, um, in a unique way, blessed by God, is because the leaders on down, and every member, we're pursuing these 15 qualities. That we're not just sitting here like sponges, absorbing the material, and we're not impressed by each other's understanding of doctrine. That we don't, we're not enamored and impressed by people's merit badges. How many verses they've memorized. How many books they've read. How many sermons they have heard. That we're not exhorting others just for knowledge for its own sake. But we are different by God's grace because we are aspiring to put these truths into practice and to follow the example set before us by the Apostle Paul. So we went to 1 Thessalonians last week. Let's go there again, 1 Thessalonians. And just to go through briefly the first seven points covered last week, we saw how in chapter 1, Paul viewed ministry to people as a privilege. That his prayers, intercessory prayers for the saints They were marked by thanksgiving. That every time he thought about the church, thought about Christians, he thought about ministering to people, he began with thanks. His prayers were sprinkled with thanksgiving. So he modeled that. He considered ministry as a privilege. 
not as a burden, not as a task. And so we model that as well. Or we are grateful to God for all of you. You're not a burden to us. People say once in a while, Pastor James, I know you're busy, but can I have some of your time? What are you talking about? You know, we are never busy for God's people, for our own church. It's like, you know, Elizabeth, I'm too busy for you, right? Check back. Maybe I have an open, you know, time slot in my calendar in uh, January 08. You know, call me then. No, we would never say that as parents. Likewise, it is a privilege, so it is our heart's desire and heart, heart's joy to serve the body here at Cornerstone. Second mark of Paul's ministry was that his ministry was life on life. He loved the believers at Thessalonica so much that he shared with them not just the gospel, but his life as well. He was transparent. He was vulnerable. He opened not just his mind, but his heart, his life to these dear believers. And so we are called to imitate that example where we minister not from a distance, but we minister up close and personal where we allow people to see our blemishes, our wrinkles, our gray hairs. Right? People say it to me all the time, Pastor James, right? Wow, so many gray hairs. You can't tell this far away, but when you see me up close and personal, and I say, you know whose fault this is, right? <laughs> you guys, right? But that's life on life, heart to heart, person to person ministry. Thirdly, beyond teaching, Paul sought to model the truths. He sought to live it out. It's easy to just be a professor, just to be a teacher. The challenge is to live it out before others, to be a model Christian. You know, it is easier to be a professor at a seminary. It's easier to be a professor at a Christian college. It is. Uh, We go to these Bible institutes. We're going again uh, early next year to Arkhangelsk, Russia, and we spend 30, 40 hours teaching. And it's easier because it's just teaching. It's just transmitting information. It is far more difficult to be a pastor, to be a shepherd, to be a spiritual leader in the context of a local church because the church, we're aspiring to model these truths, to make it alive by how we live, how we make decisions, how we speak to our wives, how we relate to our children, how we relate to one another. So Paul wanted to produce a model church, and he said teaching won't cut it. If you want to produce a model community of believers, just instruction itself won't produce that. He needs to himself get down and dirty and model it for them, show them how, then they can be model Christians. And that's what we've, we've, we've um, been seeking to do for eight years here at Cornerstone. Now we've fallen short over and over. And in that way, we model to you, we fall short. I mean, how many times have we said we were wrong? How many times have leaders said to you, forgive us, we made mistakes, we've fallen short, we, were, you know, we made errors, and you know, so on and so forth. But in that way, we model to you that, Christ, that only true Christian is Christ. That he's the only true model of Christianity. All of us are just doing our best in following after him. Fourthly, Paul modeled faithful ministry in the midst of personal pain and loss. He didn't run away when things got hard. He didn't hide his scars 
from people that he was ministering to, after being shamefully treated at Philippi, after being embarrassed, treated like criminals, flogged and whipped and, and treated like common thugs, they came to Thessalonica and they didn't hide that fact from the churches there, church believers there. They didn't hide those embarrassments. They didn't, they didn't, you know, just spin their scars and their faces and their bodies. They said, we were just embarrassed. We were humiliated. We preached the gospel and we were just persecuted. And in the midst of their heart, heartbreak, they continued to faithfully minister the gospel, all the more impacting the believers there to be faithful to Christ. Number five, Paul declares they were not motivated by personal gain. They were not in the ministry for themselves. It was not an ego trip. It, is, it can be a source of much pride to lead in the church. That's why Paul told Timothy, don't let a young believer serve as leaders or deacons in the church because temptation to be conceited, temptation to be prideful. It'll go to their heads and lead them astray. Paul said, that's not why we're in the ministry. It is not for ourselves. It's not for vain glory. I'm not, I'm not using you as a means to my end to stroke my ego. I'm ministering, I'm leading, I'm preaching for Christ and for you and then, number six, gentle, gracious, and kind leader. This might have been the most surprising one of all out of the 15. That you would think, reading Paul and, and learning from Paul, he, is, he was a bold, courageous, just warrior as a, as, a, as a spiritual leader. But we're shocked to find out that, really, the word that would define or faithfully describe his style of leadership was, was gentle, like a nursing mother. That's how tender he was. Tender-hearted man, gracious and kind, caring for believers with utmost care. He got this from Christ. By Matthew eleven twenty nine, to those religious Pharisees, Sadducees, who were convinced of their self-righteousness, they were stiff-necked, full of pride. Christ was rebuked them, Christ admonished them, Christ commanded them. Remember John 7, he took off his jacket and he told them, you don't know God. He's in the temple of God, behind enemy lines, and he takes off, he takes off his cloak, really like just to get ready for a fight, telling them, you don't know God, you're children of the devil. To those who would be proud in their own self-righteousness, but to those who are humble towards Christ, yearning for the righteousness that is in the gospel, He was like a nursing mom, gentle, tender, and full of care, just like Christ. Matthew 11, 29, I am gentle and humble in heart. What an example to us all. If Apostle Paul, who saw the risen Lord, commissioned by Christ himself to be an apostle, to be a source of divine revelation, he's a foundation of the New Testament church, and yet, the way he conducted ministry was to be gentle. How this ought to change how we minister to our, to our wives. How we relate, deal with our children. And how we lead God's people here in the church. Right? If you have a shepherd who's not kind, it's not gentle and gracious, not patient with you, you know, he sense that he's harsh, and lording over, dictatorial, pray for him. Pray for her. 
and, and suggest, let's read First Thessalonians together <laughs> and share what we learn from this epistle together because Paul was anything but those things. Number seven, Paul not only loved God's people, that was our final point we studied last week, Paul, more than, more than just loving God's people, he intensely liked the people he served. He liked the people he served. So immature Christians... Love all Christians, but like only few. Maturing believers love all, and they like all. They have so subjugated their preferences, their pride, their desires, their values, what they, what they prefer in life, that they like all believers. Chapter 2, verse 8, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves, because you have become so very dear to us. A, a word that appears only in this verse in the whole New Testament. It's in the middle voice. He himself affectionately desired, affectionately loved them. So here's a key quality of a spiritual leader. He loves people. He likes people. He is a people person. A key quality that separates effective ministers from ineffective ministers. A key quality. There's a story I heard, like, my first year in Christianity, my first year in Christ, and it amazes me. Here I am, you know, how many years later, and it still rings true. I read this in some, you know, Mickey Mouse book, but this one, illustration, it's true. Um, this, this, this guy was saying, I'm forgetting it now. This guy was saying, uh, or... Our new pastor, he's so powerful. He's preaching, and uh, all of us are repenting, and our, there's a revival in our church. And uh, what's, his new, what's his message? He comes to us, and he says, repent for the kingdom of God. Repent because of the gospel. Now, what did your old pastor preach? Oh, he preached, repent for the kingdom of God is here. Repent for the gospel. Well, what's the difference? Oh, the difference is our new pastor... He preaches with tears in his eyes. That's the difference. Right? The difference between an effective leader and an ineffective leader is the effective minister of the gospel loves and likes the people that he's ministering to because people can sense that a mile away. I talked about last week, children. Right? They, they do. They know last, right away. Like I was talking to Jean-Luc. You know, I said, hi, Jean-Luc. And you just you could tell. He can tell. And he just... Distant from me, I, I, right? Just I, I love children, but they can smell it. In my, I don't know how. Uh, like someone like Sam Pio, like DP, like they like kids. So kids know, but they know about me. I just, but people know when their spiritual leader doesn't like them. That they're just doing this as work. That is duty. It's a burden. That they're spending time with you. They're looking at their watch every five minutes. They can't wait to leave. They can tell, and nothing closes a person's heart faster than when they can sense, wow, you don't, you don't personally care for me. I'm a means to an end. You're more concerned about your preaching, your teaching, your ministry, your tasks than for me. Once that's out, nothing closes a heart faster than that. Wayne Mack wrote the following he said, I remember in seminary someone asking the question, can you be a pastor and not be a people person? 
Obviously, it is physically possible to be a pastor and not be a people person. I've met a lot of pastors that didn't seem all that interested in people. But I don't think that's really the question. Can you do the work of a pastor and not be a people person? Personally, I'd have to say no. I'm not talking about a person's personality or being Mr. Gregarious. I'm talking about trying to be a pastor and not having a vital interest in people. To me, that's what it means to be a people person. It's not about a sense of humor, a lively personality. Fundamentally, it's about being interested in and caring about people. Can you do the work of a pastor without that? I don't think so. Think so. You can go to the motions. You can perhaps preach some good sermons. But can you pastor? I'm not even sure how you can live out the Christian life. After all, the command to love has to have something to do with being interested in people. I will never try to be a pastor without being interested in God's people. If I, as a pastor, find my interest in people growing dull, I would get on my knees immediately, cry out to God, and ask Him to change my heart. If I were to look out at my congregation, as I talk to them individually, if I'm not interested in them, if I don't care deeply about them, I'm going to get on my knees and cry out to change my heart, for I cannot be a pastor, be a shepherd. So not just for spiritual leaders, but for all of us, we need to see one another, not as a means to an end, but as an end in itself. Christ loved us, so we also are to love one another. And I think maybe this is the area we struggled at the most as a church. Right? Like the master seminary, I love the seminary, but it is a very um, heady place, intellectual place. So guys that go to that seminary are book guys. Guys that love just to read. Close a door and they can read for hours. Other seminaries, I don't want to mention their names, but right, they're not like as heady, as bookish. Guys that are like hip and styling and relational, they go to those seminaries. So kind of extrapolate that to corners. We're a Cornerstone Bible Church. So people that love the Bible come to Cornerstone, love expository preaching. You guys love, you guys know who Calvin is, right? Not Calvin and Hobbes, you know it's John Calvin. <laughs> you guys really know who he is. You guys read Luther, you guys read the Puritans, you guys love, people that love books come to Cornerstone. And people that love people go to, you know, Saddleback and New Song and so forth, right? And so that's our struggle. For many of us, we love books. We struggle with people. So we love preaching. But during fellowship, oh man, one second are we going to start? I, I just waste of time. Right? Talking to this person, you know, this group of people. I want to be in the Word. Right? I want doctrine. I want meat. This is just a waste of time. Right? But as believers, they're both important. You need to love the Word. And love the people that the Word of God has produced. Right? God has saved us through His Word. And so fellowship time is not a waste. It's not just a transition time. 
It's ministry time where we show our love for one another and liking one another. And Paul modeled that. Right? Paul spent downtime. You know, Christ modeled that. He went to weddings. Right? He went to the reception afterwards. And he hung out for hours eating and drinking and hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. Showing that people were important to him. Point number eight. Paul modeled being a hard worker. He had a strong work ethic. To us, it might not be important, but for Christ and Paul, it was important. So Paul modeled this for us. In secular work, as a level worker, he was a diligent laborer. And also in the ministry, he was a hard worker. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. You remember. So he appeals to their, uh, what they saw, their knowledge. You remember, you saw for yourselves, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day. Referring both to his secular work as a tent maker and as an apostle of Christ Jesus, when he was not doing gospel ministry, he was working. When he was not working to provide for himself, he was involved in gospel ministry. So night and day, he was working hard. There was an intensity about how he lived his life. It was not just ministry. but He was in his work life as well. Acts 20, 34, and 35. Acts 20, 34, 35. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord, Jesus himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So by working, we're able to give. And by giving, it promotes our sanctification. God's not concerned about monetary, physical. I, when, when those uh, prosperity preachers manipulate this and say that you give and tenfold be given back to you, God's not concerned about physical well-being. He says there's a spiritual benefit to giving. By working hard with your hands and making uh, enough where you help others and serve and give, you are blessed spiritually. There is a spiritual benefit through physical giving. And Paul modeled this by diligent work. 1 Corinthians 4.12 We work hard with our own hands. He was not above blue-collar work. 2 Thessalonians 3.7-9 You yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not lazy when we were with you. Nor do we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we were not parasites. We were not on the welfare role of the church. We didn't see ourselves above menial labor and we should just, we're so spiritual, we're holy, everybody should support us. No, we work night and day laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we did not have the right 
this child, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. This is worthy of our imitation in work, in ministry, in family, and in life. We are to be hard workers. I think many of us, myself included, we don't know how simply to work hard. We've lost that work ethic. We lost that intensity of laboring and all that God has given us to do. Now, where did Christ, where did Paul get his work, work ethic from? Where did Paul get this work ethic from? He got it from Jesus Christ. It was modeled by our Lord himself. Turn with me to John chapter 9. We'll briefly look at this passage where we see our Lord's mindset towards work. Our Lord's mindset towards work. John chapter 9, a familiar passage of the healing of the blind man. Our Lord had cured a man in the temple. In John 9, he's running away because his enemies are persecuting him, attempting to kill him. In verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. So, this guy's in the right place. He knows what he's doing. It's a good place to beg for money near the temple. Many people saw this blind man. Many ignored him. But Christ saw him. Christ noticed him. Jesus see this man, sees this man, and he had mercy and compassion upon him. But to the disciples, verse 2, this man merely presented a theological puzzle. They come upon this man's suffering, and for them it was a theological question. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It was a thoroughly a Jewish question. The general principles laid down by Jewish rabbis that when you, when you see a man suffering from any illness, it's, a cause, it's caused by sin, either his sin or his parents' sins. That's what Job's friends were saying. Job, these things were happening to you because of sin. The reason these uh, sufferings and calamities are abounding in your life is because there's some sin in your life. And Job's saying, what? There's sin in my life? There's sin in your life. Who has not sinned? If God punishes sin in this way, then all of us would be experiencing these turmoils in life. Well, that, that false thinking has perpetuated even to the ministry of Christ. The disciples are asking, it's clearly a result of sin. The only question is, is it his fault or his parents' fault? Our Lord answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. That's not the reason. But the ultimate reason, and here is the apocalypse of of God, the revelation of God, that the works of God might be displayed in him. That the works of God, read that again, might be displayed in him. Why is there suffering? Jesus' response, that God's work might be displayed. God's glory, God's power might be displayed. Every instance of suffering is an opportunity for God to be glorified. So when Christ came and He healed people, it glorified God. Now that gift of healing is no longer with us. How do we glorify God in the midst of suffering? By serving. 
by caring, by loving, by ministering, by working. Christ glorified by working miracles. We glorify God by working, serving, caring, and loving, being compassionate. So these circumstances of suffering exist, not for us to ponder upon these theological questions, but for us to roll up our sleeves and to serve, to display the works of God. So if people are hungry, we glorify God by feeding them. If people are without clothes, we glorify God by clothing them. If there are orphans, we glorify God by caring for orphans, even adopting them, caring for widows, adopting them. And then verse 4, we must work the works of Him. He says, not I, but we, disciples, all of us, we must work. His, his work was only for three and a half years during His ministry. Now we are His ambassadors, His representatives. We are the children of light. We must work the works of Him. He shows here the compelling necessity of, for us to work the works of God. It is a must for us to do this work. He's no longer doing this work. Because He is ascended in heaven. It is now up to us. For us to display God's glory. To serve and to work hard. Minister and care and serve one another. That was our Lord's food. John 4.34 My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. Now it's the church's work. Continue on, verse 4. We must work. There's an urgency here. While it is day, for night is coming when no one can work. This opportunity will not always be present to us. Night is coming. And when night comes, opportunity is gone. Our Lord is saying we don't have much time. It's daylight now, but night is coming when we can't work. He knew for himself it was a matter of months he'd be dead. Disciples only had a few years. And for us, we don't know. We don't know. This might be the last day you have to minister to one another. Your last opportunity to show your care, your love for Christ by loving one another. You might have one more week, one more month, No one knows. But we know night is coming. And when night comes, when we die, no more opportunities to glorify God through our work. That's why Paul told the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 16, redeem the time. Redeem the time. Do not waste it away. So our Lord's response was to work. To heal this man. Apostle Paul got his work ethic from Christ himself. Where did Christ get his work ethic from? While it was day, he poured himself out. While he was on the earth, he spent himself in serving God by serving man. Our Lord 
got his work ethic from God the Father. God the Father modeled hard work, Jesus Christ. Turn to John chapter 5, verse 17. John chapter 5, verse 17. Now, our Lord has been persecuted here because He healed a man on the Sabbath, the day of God's rest. You're not, you are not to work on the Sabbath. Jesus said to them, My Father is, at, is always at His work to this very day, and I too am working. Our Lord is saying, My Father is working this today. On Sabbath, He's working. Therefore, I am also working. God the Father, in the history of the world, rested only on one day. God the Father does not rest on every seventh day. If He did, you know, it would would have been destroyed. Second week. Every Sunday would be the worst day in the world because... I mean, we will be destroyed. We will be undone. Sin and chaos will ruin reign. We will be destroyed. God works every single day. He took one day off on the first seventh day. Be an example for us. To model rest for us. From that point on, He is ceased from resting. He is ever working. So Christ said on the Sabbath, my father is working. How can I rest? And my father is working. He's laboring. So therefore, I too am working. God the Father, the diligent worker. Jesus the Son imitated the Father. The good son observes his father, follows his footsteps. He was a diligent, hard worker. Paul imitated Christ. Therefore, for us, we must imitate Paul as he imitated Christ and as Christ imitated God the Father. And so in the church, the ones to model diligence must be church leaders. It is so important that church leaders model hard work that we have a good reputation within the church and outside the church. Especially for those guys who are in the A-team who work at a secular job 40, 50, 60 hours a week and then do ministry evenings and on weekends. Doubly for you that you have a reputation among your co-workers as a hard worker, as an excellent worker, as an industrious worker full of integrity and dignity. It can't be where you can't evangelize at work. You can't share the gospel because your work ethic is so poor. You're an embarrassment to the gospel. So you can't share. You can't talk. You can't. You don't want anyone to know that you're a Christian. You, you dare not pray before meals lest Christianity be mocked by your poor, poor showing, poor record in your company. It must be the opposite and that must be modeled by church leaders. For if we are lazy, half-hearted in life, 
in family and in the world, it undermines the Word of God. And church leaders are setting a wrong example, a woeful low standard for the rest of the church. I am, I am thankful that we have good examples. By and large, I think to the man, the pastors, the elders, the flock shepherds, I can personally vouch that they are hard workers. They're men with good reputation outside the church. They're not men who play video games, wasting hours on end. They're not, they don't have wives that spend hours on end on soap operas, wasting away time and energy. You know, I don't know about you younger people, right? I don't know about you college kids, right? But I can vouch for the pastors and flock shepherds of our church that they have a strong work ethic, that they labor hard with the gospel message. I mean, I'll share this. He's not here, and he didn't share it, so I'll share it. Bob gave a sermon months ago about how he knows a man who hasn't called in sick to work for 10 years. I know who that is. That's Bob. In 10 years, he has never called in sick. He's sick. He's not Kwame, right? He's not Kwame Brown. Oh, I'm injured. Man, brother, you, you play basketball for a living. I mean, come on. I mean, I'm injured. I, so you're playing basketball. How sick are you or you can't play ball, right? I mean, the work ethic of that guy. Well, Bob's not Kwame. He's not Elden. He. He's sick, he goes to work, and his boss says, you go home, right? You're too sick to be at work, right? Marcus is a hard-working pastor, able, diligent pastor, right? He labors in the Word, labors in ministry. Our flock shepherds, right? Each one, they succeed in their workplace. They're valued employees, right, or entrepreneurs, I was talking to Peter Smith last week. Hey, Peter, just between you and me, how is Joe really doing? I won't tell anybody. Tell me how Joe Jung is doing. James, he's a hard worker. First thing he said, Joe Jung is a hard worker. Maybe a little too hard if we know Joe. Right? He's working a little too hard, but he's a hard worker. Whether you're a stay-at-home mom, school teacher, you're an accountant, consultant, or a full-time pastor, This is the mark that we have to follow because that's the mark that Paul set for us, that Christ set for Paul and God the Father set for Christ. Our work is, the secular work and family and the church, our work is love one another. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. 1 Peter 1.22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's hard to do. It's easy just to just speak acquaintances. It's easy just to have shallow talk. It's easy just to kind of you know, fellowship one another from a distance. It's hard to, to love one another, to speak the truth. What Mark was saying, ask those questions and get involved in each other's lives. Hard work, that's what we are called to do in ministry. We are called, 1 Corinthians 3.8, to sow seeds and water the seed. We are called to teach the Word of God, to study it for ourselves. It's hard work. 
studying scripture, meditating and memorizing the word of God and share that with one another. And we are to do the work of praying for one another. And that's work. For me, prayer is joy, but prayer is also labor. I'm, I'm punching the clock in a sense. It's my work. It's my duty. It's my task to pray for my family, pray for the leaders of the church, and pray for Cornerstone. The Bible promises us that as we labor in God's work, it is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Our labor is not in vain, and our labor is to be motivated by love. I love this. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3. Your labor prompted by love. See, serving the church is unique in this way. See, I know you guys, some of you guys work, and you're not motivated by love. Some of you hate numbers, you're accountants, right? Some of you guys don't like kids, you're teachers. It's not love that's motivating you. It's the paycheck. It's all good, right? We work hard, we work for money, that's fine. But in the church, you can't be, it has to be motivated by love. Right? Our love for God and our love for one another, we must not be hired hands. I read this past week, uh, Manny Ramirez from Boston Red Sox. Uh, they were down 3-1 to one in the American League Championship Series, and and they were down 3-1, and one, and they asked him, you know, what if you guys lose and you guys are knocked off the playoffs? And what did he say? Right? It's not the end of the world. Who cares? Right? Why? Because Manny Ramirez is not from Boston. He was born in the Dominican Republic. Right? So he has no affinity to the city of Boston, the Boston fans who have, you know, he won a few years ago, but who, you know, would lo- love that team. And then first eight years, he played for Cleveland Indians. He's just a hired hand. And he's in Boston now. Why? Because they've agreed to give him more money. So he plays baseball just for money. If they lose, who cares? Don't skin off my back. I'm going on vacation. Right? Not for Christians who love God and love the church. We work hard in ministering in the church. We, we work hard serving in the church. Because we love the church. Because we love the Christians whom we serve. It's personal. So I understand that it's a voluntary uh, organization here at Cornerstone. Only Marcus and I can get fired, right? We don't do our work. If you don't do your work, right, what do we do? Try harder next time, right? Thanks for trying, right? But we don't work hard because we might get fired, we work hard because we are motivated, prompted by love for Christ and love for Christ's church. Five questions to end our time. Would your co-workers, would the people above you, overseeing you at work, would they consider you as a hard worker? You college students out there, are you? Studying hard, that's your work. You junior high students, that's your labor right now. Are you studying hard? Working hard? Because that's your labor to Christ? To be a model student for your, uh, to your professor and to your fellow students? All you workers out there, are you diligent, devoting yourself above reproach at work? Because that is a platform for the gospel. If you're not a diligent worker, excellent your work. Really, you, you bring harm to the gospel. You undermine our message. You're hindering what Christians are doing in your workplace, in your campuses. When they're trying to proclaim the gospel through their doctrine and life, you're undermining it. Are you stay-at-home moms? Are you cutting corners? 
right? Are you being lazy? Are you above reproach before the sight of God? Are you laboring hard? Secondly, is your visible life and behavior disciplined, consistent, and attractive? Your visible life, behavior. Disciplined, consistent, attractive. Is your life in order? Is your room clean? Is your car clean? Are your finances in order? What would people see if they tagged along with you for a week? Would they see your life? Wow, you're working hard. You're redeeming the time. You understand that life is short where a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Wow, you really live out that truth. That night is coming when we can't work any longer. So wow, this day, you're diligent. Are you a hard worker in serving Christ? Are you a hard worker? Are you an excellent minister of Christ? You need to do ministry in the church. I would ask number four, what motivates your diligence? What motivates your being a hard worker? Is it legalism? Is it pride? Because you use that as a way to judge others. You evaluate others because you're so prideful and how hard you work that you, you just you work hard for pride's sake, a source of pride. You work hard to garner attention. Do you make it make it a point to make sure that everyone knows how hard you work? Right? Do you make sure like your wife knows and your husband knows, and your children, your boss, everyone knows. You make it a point how hard you work. Do you work as an escape? You're running away from something. You escape to work. Or are you working hard, studying hard? Because you love God and you love God's people. And then finally, do you take time to rest? Do you take breaks? Do you go on vacations? Or are you consumed with work and consumed with anxious toil? You're always at work. You can never rest. When you're at home, you're thinking about work. When you're on vacation, you're thinking about work. That means you're lazy. That means you're not disciplined. That means you don't trust God. We rest by faith. Lack of resting is due to not trusting that God is sovereign, God is working, God is in control. Lack of rest means pride. You think without you, the whole world is going to fall apart. Your company or this church will fall apart. True faith works hard when it's time to work, when it's time to rest, time to be with family, they're fully devoted to that time of rest. Well, we just cover one point today. Let's try to cover more next week. That's for <laughs>